This is Optimal Living Daily, episode 2649, on transforming the judgmental mind, stories from seven days of silence, part two, by Dr. Ilana Miller of zenpsychiatry.com. And I'm Justin Mollick, the guy that reads to you every single day of the year. Now, today's episode is part two of a longer post. If you didn't catch part one, I'd recommend listening to that first. But if you're all caught up, let's get right to part two and continue optimizing your life. On Transforming the Judgmental Mind, Stories from Seven Days of Silence, Part Two, by Dr. Ilana Miller of zenpsychiatry.com. The second step in transforming the judgmental mind, replace negative mind states with positive ones. I recently read a story of Burmese Buddhist monks who traveled up to the top of the Himalayas in freezing cold temperatures, wrapped themselves in wet sheets, and then meditated on a heat growing from their bodies to the point where they dried the sheets through the sheer power of their thoughts. Even after only a week of intensive meditative practice, I have no doubt that such a feat is possible. One of the tools we studied as an antidote for the judgmental mind was the divine abode practices, of which there are four, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. We practice cultivating these positive mind states toward ourselves and others through repeating specific phrases over and over. For example, to practice loving kindness toward myself, I would repeat, may I be safe and protected. May I be healthy and strong. May I be happy. May I live with ease. After hours of repeating these phrases, they seem to take on a life of their own. At one point, we did an exercise directing loving kindness toward ourselves, then toward a mentor, then toward a good friend, then toward a familiar stranger, then toward a difficult person, and then toward all beings. Over the 45 or so minutes of the exercise, I swear I could feel an inner ray of warmth and compassion grow and grow until it emanated out of the entire world. And then when I noticed my mind drifting into judgment, I could repeat these phrases to myself and feel the negativity drift away as it was replaced by joy. With practice, I could choose to let go of negative mind states and replace them with positive ones. As a side note, at one point I started doing loving kindness practice for a baby sea lion who had popped up its head next to me as if to say hello while I was surfing in Malibu a few weeks back. I just couldn't help but crack up out loud right in the middle of the meditation room, probably interrupting the contemplative silence of everyone else. The thought was just so joyful. I'm sure others found my laughter amusing and maybe even a little joyful too. Meditation is a tool, not a cure for all of life's problems. I'll admit by the end of the retreat, I was ready to drink the Kool-Aid. A few experiences right at the end though helped rebalance my perspective for which I am extremely grateful. The first experience was when one of the meditation teachers made a flippant comment criticizing psychotherapy. At first, I was a little hurt. I practice psychotherapy and have benefited from receiving it, but then recognized that this comment was very similar to what I often hear from my psychotherapy supervisors who subtly, or not so subtly, criticize forms of therapy that they do not practice. I believe this is driven by ego. When one dedicates his or her entire life toward developing expertise in a particular style of therapy, one likes to think that they are not missing out on something else that could, at times, be more effective. So in this context, I understood the impulse of my teacher to make a somewhat careless comment criticizing a practice different from what she has dedicated her life to teach. This moment, helped me realize that even meditation teachers far more spiritually developed than I are human beings just like the rest of us. The second experience happened the final evening when I could not fall asleep because I was overcome with guilt about something that happened long ago. 
Two years ago, my boyfriend was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident, was hospitalized, and needed surgery. I felt I had not done enough in some key moments to help him. Grief and guilt about this situation had been overwhelming me all week, which surprised me because this is not something I think about much and it happened so long ago, although the environment of the retreat seemed to make all sorts of suppressed emotions resurface. I felt guilty because I had watched him suffer overnight without pain medications because of the inexperience of the intern taking care of him, and I'm a doctor and he was in the hospital where I had trained and I felt I should have been able to do more to help him. I had cried it out and had done loving kindness, compassion, and forgiveness practices for myself, but still the grief would not go away. I was tired of it. I thought to myself, I'm going home tomorrow and I've got to do. I can't keep crying about this. So I did a brief exercise derived from cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes criticized for being inflexible and overly simplistic, where I analyzed the thought of, I didn't do enough to help my boyfriend when he was hurt. I asked myself what percentage of me felt this thought was true, 90%. Then I listed in my head all the evidence that it was. I wasn't pushy enough with the nurse to get him pain medication. I didn't insist on speaking to the doctor directly. For hours, I didn't do anything. Feeling helpless and out of control, etc., etc. Then I listed all the evidence that this thought was false. I did harass the nurse about a dozen times and even had the nurse supervisor paged. When the doctor came to the room, I negotiated with him when I felt the amount of pain medicine he offered was not sufficient. I pointed to his medical record indicating what he had received in the ER. I calmly, convincingly argued that my boyfriend was not a drug seeker and that he barely takes Tylenol and that there was no reason not to give the doses I requested. The following day, I carefully, insistently followed up with the doctors to make sure nothing would impede his speedy discharge. I drove him home and took care of him around the clock for the next two weeks which fortunately happened to be my vacation time. Through the whole experience, I stayed by his side, translating the medical jargon, reassuring him that he would be okay, etc., etc. Then I asked myself, what percentage of me still believes that I didn't do enough? 20%. Phew, relief. This moment showed me that while meditation practices are powerful, they are not a cure for all of life's suffering. At times, there will be more effective tools for one's problems and the most skillful clinicians will need to weave mindfulness and meditation wisely into the moments when it is most needed and leave it to the side when it is not. Because honestly, there is no scientific evidence that any one tool or style of therapy, including mindfulness, is consistently more effective than any other. And in my study and experience, all the therapeutic tools to ease suffering, including mindfulness, share more in common than their advocates realize or would like to admit which now seems obvious. After all, human suffering is as universal as the tools and strategies, whether ancient or modern, we have developed to alleviate it. You just listened to part two of the post titled On Transforming the Judgmental Mind, Stories from Seven Days of Silence by Dr. Ilana Miller of zenpsychiatry.com. Great stuff in this post from Dr. Ilana. I'm glad she mentioned that meditation is a tool and not a cure-all. Often people go in either thinking meditation will cure them of certain issues or that it's a weird mystical thing where you become enlightened and then you're done. I don't see it as either. To me, it's a simple exercise like going to the gym. You're never done. It's like going to the gym for your mind. It's a concentration practice in a lot of ways, but also an awareness practice. And that combination of mindfulness and awareness can alleviate a lot of suffering that we cause ourselves because we don't realize it's all in our heads. It's really that simple. 
She mentioned that at one point they did an exercise directing loving kindness toward herself, then toward a mentor, then toward a good friend, toward a familiar stranger, difficult person, toward all beings. That kind of meditation is something similar I walked listeners through on the Meditation Minis podcast, January 19th, 2020 episode. It's one where you give loving kindness out to someone else. It's the most powerful meditation practice I've tried, so if you want to check that out, you can listen to the Meditation Minis podcast episode, January 19th, 2020. But that should do it for this one. I'll be back in just a moment, actually, with our weekly bonus episode, so stay tuned for that, where optimal life awaits.